This is the Visible Hand, a podcast about organizations, economics, and management. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and I am an associate professor at the Department of Management, London School of Economics. My guest today is Claudia Robles Garcia, who is an assistant professor of finance at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Today, we are going to talk about her paper, Competition and Incentives in Mortgage Markets, the Role of Brokers. Claudia, welcome to the program. Hello, Jordi. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Uh, Claudia, can you you tell us, first of all, so that the listeners have an idea, what is the main message of this paper? Well, the paper tries to think about why households or consumers go to expert advisors, right? When you think about people buying financial products, in many cases, they decide to hire an expert, either like an insurance broker, a mortgage broker, investment broker, to give them some sort of advice of what product to get. Now, we often think that these expert advisors have their own incentives. Incentives, and, and these incentives may distort their advice to, to consumers. And that might be a problem because then consumers may end up with what we think of suboptimal products. Now, the point of the paper is it's very simple. When you look at previous literature, this is the main problem when you think about expert advisors. Uh, their their um, advice might, might be distorted. However, in this paper, what I tried to make um, show is that expert advisors may have positive effects if the firms providing the products or don't compete much. So, so what do I mean by this? When consumers go to extra advisors, in a way, there's a bit of a trade-off. On the one hand, they advice might be distorted because of the incentives these experts may face from providers of, of the goods. However, because these advisors are in the market, there might be more competition at the upstream level among providers. So this paper talks about this trade-off in the context of mortgage markets where banks provide mortgages to consumers and consumers can go to a broker to get some sort of advice on which mortgage to take. We know that banks are highly concentrated. There are not many of them them. So brokers may increase competition in this market by allowing new players to come to come in. And this creates a trade. So as you said, this paper studies the UK mortgage market. Uh, I happen to live in the UK. I also have a mortgage. So I knew very well how this market works, but I presume that most of our listeners uh, will not be perfectly familiar with how this, this market operates. Uh, can you tell us who are the main players in this market? What are their objectives and what choices do these players have? So as in, as in many, many markets across the world, when a consumer has found a house that they like and they want to buy it, a lot of the time you don't have money to buy it. So you need a mortgage to, to finance the, the purchase. Now, consumers in, in the UK can either get a mortgage directly from a bank or they can go to a mortgage broker. And then through the mortgage broker, they can originate a mortgage with one of the best. Now, most mortgages in the UK are sold uh, by the what we call the, the big uh, the top uh, five banks. And these big banks basically account for more than 75% of all mortgage originations. And, and basically, they are traditional banks, right? They are big, they have a lot of branches, They're what you could think of traditional ones. But this feature is important because you were saying earlier that one side of the trade-off is going to be increasing competition in the upstream. It's critical to understand that competition in the upstream in this market is very low. So, exactly. That's a very good point, Jordi. So I, I said five, it's six. So the the six largest banks in this market, they account for 75% of all mortgage originations. So basically, if you look at concentration ratios, they're, they're very high. And especially once you zoom in at the local level, there's not many branches available for consumers to, to shop from. Now, what's really interesting about this market is that over the last few years, there's been a lot of entry from what we call challenger banks. And challenger banks are very different from these traditional banks. They, they You could think of them as a bit of like fintech lenders, right? In, in the context of the US, they're called often shadow banks or, or they're just different. And, and they're different because, for example, they don't have many branches. Uh, they they really don't, don't have the typical like a brick and mortar shops. They're, they're more online and, and they, they do like, they, they try to advertise a bit more, but that they're different and they're entering the market. Now, how are they entering the market? Well, one thing that is very characteristic in the, in the UK 
but it also applies to other markets, such as the US, is that consumers that go directly to the banks to get the mortgage, more often than not, go to the nearest branch. So they don't really shop much around for, for, for mortgages. They just go to the nearest branch or the branch where they have their current account. Now, remember, these challenger banks don't have many branches. So how are they getting access to consumers? Well, the way they're doing it is through brokers. Now, in the UK, 50% of all mortgage originations are done through a broker. So consumers in the UK really, really uh, value the services of brokers because 50% are choosing to originate the mortgage through this mortgage person. Now, each mortgage broker has a portfolio of, of banks with whom they do business. A consumer goes to the broker and, and the broker is going to offer the consumer a, a set of options that the consumer can, can choose from based on whatever banks the broker is doing business with. The consumer pays a fee to the broker and also the bank is going to pay a commission to the broker. And this is, this is how it works in the UK, but it's also how it works, for example, in the US or, or in other countries. Now, as, as Jordi mentioned, it's, it's very important that, uh, that these new banks are introduced in their products or getting their products through consumers through these brokers. So instead of building a bunch of branches, which are very costly, they're just paying high commissions to these brokers so that the brokers will have an incentive to, to sell their products to consumers in, in this market. And these challenger banks, presumably they are offering better products to consumers, maybe like cheaper, cheaper mortgages. That's, that's exactly right. So these, these new banks, because they don't have to pay all these costs of building branches or like, like trying to, to do all these, all these things that traditional banks do, their average, their marginal costs are a lot lower. And then they're, on average, they're able to offer lower rates to consumers. Uh, so having more challenger banks would generally be good for society, for consumers. That is something that brokers allow by their presence. Uh, however, in addition to charging a fee to the consumer, which presumably does not lead to a big distortion, you know, they just charge a fee to the consumer. They recommend whatever they think is the possi best possible mortgage uh, to the consumer. In addition to this, they also charge a commission to the bank that they are originating the mortgage for. From. And this is what potentially generates a distortion. Why would this generate a distortion? Exactly. So, so that's the, the negative side of the trade-off, right? So at the end of the day, I, I, I think that the point of this paper is what are the trade-offs of having these brokers, these expert advisors in the market? And, and you just described the potentially negative side of, of having brokers because, as you just said, brokers get paid a commission from the lenders. And these commissions are very different. So some banks pay very high commissions to a given broker. Other banks may pay very little. So from the point of view of the broker, profits are very different from originating one mortgage from another. And this can potentially lead to a conflict of interest between the broker and the consumer. Because, I mean, I'm the consumer, I go to the broker, and the broker may try to steer me into the product that gives uh, him or her the, the largest commission from the bank. Now, whether this is happening or not, well, that's an empirical question, right? Because it's not obvious that that this would be always a bad thing because imagine the following scenario. I'm a consumer and I go to the broker and the broker tries to steer me to a product that is not the best one for me, but pays him or her the largest commission. Well, if I'm very sophisticated and I know the market, I'm going to tell the broker, well, that's a bad product um, and I can just walk away. So if consumers were really sophisticated, then uh, it will be very hard for the broker to, to steer consumers away from their optimal choice. It's also the case that for for example, um, in the UK in particular, brokers and consumers keep meeting over and over again because refinancing happens very often. So similar to the US, in, in the UK, people refinance very frequently. In particular, they refinance every two or five years. So the fact that there's this dynamic relationship actually may prevent the broker to rip off the consumer in this first interaction because if the consumer realizes it, it's not going to come back from the broker. So you are saying that in addition to brokers playing a, a positive role in terms of uh, increasing upstream competition, it is not even clear empirically that that distortion is even present in this market because one can think of theoretical reasons that will prevent that distortion from taking place. The main one that you mentioned is the fact that reputation is very important in this market as a result of the fact that households refinance very often and therefore having been treated 
adopted by a mortgage broker the first time will lead to repeat business from the same household. And therefore, there are these reputation concerns that make it a little bit unclear, at least theoretically, that there is a distortion. Yeah, exactly. So, so it could be in the broker's best interest not to pay attention to the commissions that bank pay them. If, for example, there's a lot of repeated sales and consumers eventually will figure out that they're getting a bad deal. And also, as, as you mentioned, reputation is also very important in this market because a lot of the business brokers get is through referrals. So when you ask consumers, how did you find this broker? Most of them say, oh, I just got it recommended by a, a family member or a friend. So you said that uh, commissions are very heterogeneous across, say, the lender broker pair. What is the source of that heterogeneity? How are these commissions determined? So basically, in real life, what's happened? is that each so okay so I, I maybe I should have explained this a bit better before but each broker it's part of a big broker company so when you think of a mortgage broker you shouldn't think of these like one person firm these are big companies and usually about 20 of them account for most of the market and once you zoom in at the local level you usually have like two or three broker companies in a county so these big broker companies meet once a year with the the banks and and they negotiate these commissions right like we we see the contracts and, and basically you see that basically they reach an agreement on for every mortgage the broker originates from a given bank, the bank is going to pay them a commission, which is going to be a percentage of the value of the loan. So if I'm a broker and I originate a 100K mortgage with, for example, Barclays, Barclays will pay 2% of that 100K to, to the broker. So it's about like 2K. And, and yeah, then as I mentioned before, they're very heterogeneous, right? Barclays may pay very little to broker A and a lot to broker B. And broker B may get a lot from Santander, but very little from Barclays. Um, and these are negotiated every year. So the commissions paid by lenders to brokers are endogenously determined through negotiation. The fees that the brokers charge to the households, the consumers, they are presumably fixed, no? Like there is no negotiation there. Another characteristic of the market is that there is no negotiation about the interest rate between households and lenders either. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. So, so usually when most of the research on mortgages um, thinks about interest rate negotiated between the borrower and the bank, depending on the borrower characteristics, right? So you would imagine in, in the US, for example, two borrowers, going into the same bank may get different rates for exactly the same mortgage product depending on, for example, their credit score. That is not the case in the UK. So in the UK, there is very little borrower-specific pricing. What do I mean by this? Well, once you think of a mortgage product as the combination of a bank, a loan-to-value bank, and an initial fixed period, so, so as I mentioned before, UK mortgages have their refinance every two or five years, and the way this works is that there's an initial fixed period over which the interest rate is fixed and afterwards it becomes variable. And basically what happens is that the minute it becomes variable, everybody refinances. So once you control for bank, loan-to-value ban and fixed period, there is no price dispersion left or very little. What does this mean? It means that credit scores of individuals don't really matter. It's like, so So previous work on our mortgages, they often call the UK mortgage market a supermarket because conditional on being approved for the mortgage you just go and pick it up from the shelf and there's no negotiation on the price. So what is the data set that you use for this study? So, so I use this amazing data set from, from the Financial Conduct Authority, which is one of the regulators of, of the UK mortgage market. And, and effectively in this data set, I observe all mortgage originations in the UK for about like a year and a half. And, and for each mortgage, I observe a lot of details. I observe a lot of information on the mortgage characteristics. So I observe the price, the interest rate, the loan to value, initial fixed period, which bank originated the mortgage. I also observe information on the borrower. So I know their income, their credit score, um, their location, where did they buy the house, the size of the house, and so on. But what's really the comparative advantage of this data set as, as opposed to others, and, and what's going to really allow me to answer some questions that the literature couldn't answer, not because they weren't important, but because the data wasn't out there, 
was the is the fact that for every mortgage, I observe whether it was done by a broker or not. So whether it was intermediated or not, which broker intermediated the sale and every single payment the broker got, both from the consumer and from the bank. So basically, I observe the commissions and, and the fees that, that brokers get. And this level of detail on the payments of these expert advisors, it's really, really hard to get. And obviously, if, if you don't observe these payments, it's also very hard to understand the incentives of these expert advisors as well. That's something that it was, it was very nice to have. The paper is built, as you mentioned earlier, around the trade-off between distortion induced by brokers and improvement of competition on the upstream, again, induced by the presence of brokers. Yes. You have a, a very detailed model capturing this trade-off that you will tell us uh, about in a second. But before that, you have two reduced form pieces of evidence that are capturing both sides of this trade-off. Specifically, first, when you argue that commission payments uh, from lenders to brokers distort the mortgages that the households end up buying, uh, what evidence do you have on the reduced form to support this claim in this specific market? So as you mentioned before, jumping into this structural model that, that a lot of people think it's, it's a bit of a black box, sometimes it's, it's good to show that the trade-off that it's going to be at the core of the model is actually there in the data. And so that's what I try in, to do in the, in the section you just mentioned. So to, to find suggestive evidence that there is potentially a negative effect of, of having brokers in this market, meaning that they are reacting to these commission payments when maybe they shouldn't because because if think about they're reacting, but in a way that it's not basically in the same direction as consumer preferences. So they're recommending a product, not because the consumer wanted it, but because they're getting a higher commission from the banks. And that's very difficult to show, right? Because... Well, what brokers always tell you is that they're recommending this product to the consumer, not because it has a very high commission, but because the consumer really, really wanted it. And as an econometrician, we we often, well, we never observe everything about consumers, right? I mean, I observe income, location, age, but I don't observe number of kids, right? Um, I don't observe other things that may matter for the consumer decision on, on their mortgage. So so it's these unobservable characteristics that the consumer that may complicate things. So, so what do I do in the, in the reduced form? Trying to separate these supply side incentives that the broker may face as opposed to what the consumer really wanted. Well, what I do is I try to look basically at the same broker over time. And, and basically for that same broker, I'm going to try to see whether the sales of a given broker are going to change as their commissions they're getting change over time. So, so what's the intuition? Well, imagine that I'm, I'm a broker and I'm selling to the same pool of borrowers. So I have a given clientele and suddenly one of the banks increases the commission on one of their products by 1%. Well, if imagine that I could perfectly control for my client, for the broker's clientele preferences, then this increase in the commission, if it also leads to an increase in sales of that broker for that product, then I'm going to interpret these as supply side incentives, assuming that I'm able to control for these demand side preferences through this broker clientele. So the regression is a regression of a broker selling more or less of the product of a particular lender. This is the dependent variable. On the independent variable, you have obviously the commission that that lender uh, pays to the broker. You have a bunch of fixed effects. But as you mentioned earlier, the critical fixed effect here is the fixed effect for the broker lender pair. And then what you're doing is exploiting variation in the commission rate within that broker-lender pair. That is, in periods in which that lender happens to pay a higher commission to that broker, it also turns out that that broker sells a higher share of mortgages of that lender, right? I mean, in principle, it could be that that commission has been increased by uh, for a reason because maybe that lender thought, well, I really want to push this product because it's very attractive for what 
whatever. But this is at least, you know, strongly suggestive evidence of that distortion. Exactly. And and not only, I think, as you said, like that the broker-lender fix effect, that's super important um, to exploit the, the variation you just mentioned. But also there's another important fix effect, which is the broker time fix effect. Because it, in a way, it tries to control for the fact that there could be selection into a given broker, right? So, so it could of be course. that this particular broker has a customers that really like this bank and this selection can be changing over time. So that's what we try to do like with this broker time fix effect in a way try to control for these demand preferences of the broker's uh, clients. Okay, so in the reduced form so far, we have that brokers are bad. We have seen the first side of the distortion. You argue in the paper that there is one main advantage of brokers that you emphasize and this comes from the fact that the mortgage market is very concentrated. As you said, there are very few banks, the the big six, I think you you call them, uh, Mm -hmm. with a very large market share. Secondly, as you mentioned also, even if at a national level competition was higher, at the local level, competition might still be very low because some banks may be concentrated in terms of having a higher branch present in some areas and therefore reduce competition for the customers that live in these areas. So then the brokers have an advantage in that they are providing an alternative channel that allows smaller challenger banks to also sell mortgages, which increases upstream competition, decreases prices. What is the evidence that you have in the reduced form for for this effect? So so in the raw data, what what I see is that if you zoom in into a county, the more brokers there are, the more competition in mortgage originations across banks. Keep the number of banks' branches constant. If you go to a county with a lot of brokers, originations are going to be more or less split across different banks, independent of whether they have branches or not. If you go to a county that has no brokers, we're going to observe that most mortgages are like heavily concentrated. Only those banks that have branches actually have mortgage originations in that county. So that's like the very like brute force raw correlations that we see in the data. Just a question that comes to mind. I, I mentioned earlier that I have a mortgage. Mm-hmm. The first time that I got a mortgage, I think I hired a broker, but that broker was not based in London. You are saying, however, that the local presence of the brokers matters a lot. Like most uh, consumers are not like me in that it matters for them that the broker is local as well. Yes. So, so the beauty of this data set is that we also observe the location of brokers' offices. And it's true that some brokers are online and they have a lot of businesses outside in counties outside their headquarters, you could say, like, like, for example, your case. But what we find is most people actually go to the nearest broker office, or, or it's someone that, that they know in their town, and they were recommended by other people who are buying houses in their town. And, and they're very, they're very local. Yes. Also, I, I might, I might also like to highlight that a lot of these mortgage brokers are also vertically integrated with real estate brokers. So what happens a lot of the time is that, yes. so what happens a lot of the time is that I go to I don't know. I go to Oxford and I'm looking for a house. I hire a real estate broker because that's what you do in many of these towns. And then when it's about to time to close the deal on the house, the real estate broker says like, oh, we have this mortgage broker in house. Would you like to use it? And about one third of mortgage brokers get their business through, through this vertical integration with real estate agents. So that's why this yes. local presence matters a lot because real estate agents for sure are local where the house is. Um, so, so that's why... It matters a bit. Um, okay, so so basically, as, as I told you, that there's this like there's this. These are the aggregate, like the raw data correlations, right? Counties with more brokers, more competition among the best. Now, how do you do this in a regression format? Well, what we try to do is imagine I'm a consumer and I decide to go to the broker. Am I more or less likely to be matched with one of these challenger banks? Remember these these new fintech lenders, as opposed to if I was instead going directly to the banks. So what we find is that, so that the regression is on the Y variable, whether I go to the challenger bank or not. And then on the X variable, did I go to the broker or not? And then we're trying to control for characteristics of the consumer, of the mortgage and, and so on. And, and at least in this correlation, we see that as a consumer, if I go to the broker, I'm a lot more likely to go to be paired with these challenger banks as opposed to me going directly to the bank. Because as I mentioned before, most people people that go directly to banks go to the nearest branch and challenger banks don't have branches. 
on the basis of this trade-off and many other things that the model includes, you build a theoretical model to capture this relation. And I think that this model is very rich, but in addition to this, it seems to me that it's almost complete. Like I found it very difficult to think of any major feature of this market that was not represented in the model. Like you see, you really managed to capture the totality of the economic forces, at least to a casual observer, what seems like totality of the economic forces in, in the model. Can you give us an idea of what are these main elements of the of the model? Of course, Jordi. And thank you for, for the for the compliments. I hope referees agree as well. <laughs> yes. So so how does uh, the model works? Well, I'm an IO economist. I work in industrial organization and people in the organization, we like to think as markets as supply and demand. So there's going to be supply forces and there's going to be demands. So how does supply of this market look like? Well, on the supply side, we have basically banks and brokers. And on the demand side, we have households in need of emotion. Now, on the supply side, the way the model works is that first, banks and brokers are going to meet and they're going to decide whether the broker can sell the bank's products. And if they decide, yes, let's build the relationship, they're going to fix a commission payment for the broker. If they don't reach an agreement, the broker will not be able to to sell the products of the bank. And you could think of these negotiations as, as in pairs, right? So every broker and every bank separately meet and they're going to try to reach an agreement. And, and the way we model this in Nash in Nash bargaining, which basically what it means is the following. Imagine you have a corridor with a bunch of rooms. Each broker and each bank are going to enter the rooms in pairs all at the same time. And there they're going to negotiate and they're going to decide, as I mentioned before, whether the broker can sell the bank's products. If yes, they set a commission rate. If no, broker cannot sell the bank's products. And then once all the decisions are, are made, all the agreements or disagreements are decided, all pairs leave the room, they come back to the corridor, and that's the equilibrium. That's how Nash and Nash bargaining works. So why would a lender ever not want a broker to carry its mortgages? Like, if the price was, if the commission was zero, you know, wouldn't, as a, as a lender, I always want more people to offer my products? So so it depends on whether, how costly it is for the bank, independent of the commission, how costly it is for the bank to originate their mortgage through their branches as opposed to through a broker. Because I think about it, banks also have their own branches and branches and brokers are going to compete for consumers downstream. Consumers have a choice. So from the point of view of the bank, what is more costly? Selling a mortgage through the branch or selling a mortgage through the broker? Because it could be that brokers have a better technology. So if brokers have a better technology and it turns out that the marginal cost of the bank of selling through the broker is lower, then if commissions are zero, banks would definitely want to sell everything through brokers because they're just cheaper. Now, when commissions are not zero, then banks need to do the math, right? They need to decide, okay, it's costing, I have to pay these commissions, but it's cheaper if the marginal cost is lower. Well, in that case, it's going to depend, right? It's going to depend on how much money do I make if I just do it through the branch as opposed to the broker. And, and sometimes what we find is that what the broker wants, so the commission the broker is asking is actually higher than what the bank is willing to pay. When that happens, the link breaks and the bank says, I'm sorry, you're asking for too much. We also find sometimes that the broker wants to break the egg link as well, because sometimes brokers prefer not to do business with many banks as opposed to very few to extract more commissions. Is that is that the supply side or are there more elements to the supply side of the market? Yes, sorry. So, so the first part of the supply is these brokers and lenders getting together and deciding the commissions and, and the network, right? At the end of the day, when all these negotiations are over, each broker is going to have a portfolio of banks with whom they can do business. Now, once that's set, the second part of the supply side is lenders are going to choose their interest rates and they're going to compete on, on interest rates. Because at the end of the day, think about it, like lender has a bunch of products, a bunch of mortgage products. They need to decide how to price these products. That's going to be the, the usual supplies. So the idea here is that if a bank has a very large branch network and it is also paying very high commissions to brokers, then the bank will say, I'm just going to have a very high interest rate. Both because I need to recover the cost and also because I'm going to have a lot of demand for my product. But if the bank has, 
you know, pay, is paying low commissions, has no branches, then maybe the bank is going to offer a cheaper mortgage on average. Exactly, exactly. So so prices are going to depend on, as you just mentioned, the costs that the banks are facing, both what they need to pay to the broker, what they need to pay to, to the branches, how, much, how costly it is to have branches. And it's also going to depend on demand. It's going to depend on how much of these costs can be passed through to consumers. Um, and that depends on the demand elasticity. But yeah. So the supply side is over now? Yes. <laughs> now so the demand, no, the demand side. <laughs> okay, so what about demand? Well, once supply is is finished, we have co- consumers are gonna observe prices and they're gonna observe commission rates, right? I'm assuming that everything is public information. So then, consumers remember they have found a house that they like. They need a mortgage to buy it. So so basically, they are gonna make two sequential choices. First, consumers are gonna choose between going directly to banks or going into brokers. Now, what does this decision depend on? Well, they're going to make the decision of whether going directly to banks or going to, to brokers depending on their shopping costs. So what do I mean by this shopping cost? Well, if, if the consumer decides to go directly to banks, they're going to have to search for information. So there are going to be search costs. I need to figure out which bank is offering me the cheaper rate. Uh, what are the characteristics of the product? There's a lot of information you need on getting the mortgage. And on top of that... Um, um, you're going to have to spend time doing the actual paperwork, right? If you do it just by yourself. If, on the other hand, you go to the broker, you're effectively delegating the whole process, right? So your shopping costs are effectively zero. And, and you can just let the broker tell you which is the best product out there. And also t- the broker is going to effectively do all the paperwork for you. So consumers with very high shopping costs are more likely to delegate to the broker. Consumers with very little uh, shopping costs are more likely to go directly to bus. I have been waiting until this moment (laughs) to emphasize that there is a second benefit from brokers. And this is that they they are more efficient in the origination or generation of sale process of mortgages than it will be in their absence. That is, they reduce the shopping costs of consumers. So therefore, that's a benefit as well. One in principle could could be the model where that was the only other side of the trade-off. It's not one that you you emphasize you will it will be there somewhere but it's it's a second benefit yes yes and that's i'm, I'm very happy that you brought this point because a uh, previous work on on expert advisors that's exactly the trade-off they have focus on so so when you think of intermediaries or expert advisors a lot of the focus has been okay if we assume consumers are rational and and they're choosing to go to brokers there must be some benefit for them di- a direct benefit rather than this indirect benefit through general equilibrium that my paper tries to quantify and in previous work, um, for example, by, by Tobias Saltz, he, he has shown that intermediaries and can actually reduce search costs for consumers. However, because intermediaries, they also have their own incentives consumers may end up with a worse product, but if what they lose in terms of product outcome is less than what they gain from not having to pay these these search costs or shopping costs, then they will choose to go to the broker. Very good. Is this the end of the model? No, there's one more step. So remember, I, I, I mentioned that consumers have two sequential decisions. First, they need to decide whether they go to the broker or they go direct. Now, once they've decided which distribution channel they're going to choose from, then they need to choose the product. Now, consumers that go directly to banks, they're going to choose the product that is available to them across the, the banks that gives them the highest payoff. That's very standard. Now, consumers that went to the broker, remember I told you that they're delegating the decision to the broker. So how does this interaction between the borrower and the broker show up? How does it work? And also, how where does the the agency conflict shows up in the model. Well, what's going to happen is that now you have two people taking the decision as opposed to one person when going directly to banks, right? So now we have two agents. So there's the consumer and there's the broker. The way I'm going to model this interaction is as a weighted average of both the broker and the consumer utility. So in a way, you could think of them as trying to maximize the joint surplus and then splitting, splitting the gains. So if we had if we had a model in which that was the only part, the model would be incredibly complex. It would be some type of like cheap talk model in which the receiver is rational and updates beliefs and so on and so forth. But of course, here that part of the interaction is put together with everything else. You cannot afford, you know, to have out of complexity there. The reduced form version that you put in the model is essentially maximizing the weighted average of the utility of both edges. 
agents. So now the household is not 100%, it's only 80% or 40% of the objective of that decision. Exactly, exactly. What I want to, do, to understand is how much weight is put on brokers' preferences as opposed to how much weight is put on household preferences. Now, if brokers were perfectly benevolent and incentives were aligned, all the weight should be put on what the consumer wants. So these weights on the consumer preferences and the broker preferences, well, we should put all the weight on consumers. Now, if consumers were perfectly naive <laughs> and they didn't know what they were doing and there was no repeated interaction or no reputation concerns, well, the broker should just rip off the consumer, right? Like they should just put all the weight on their own preferences. In real life, I don't know which of these two things are happening or where in the middle we are. So the whole point of, of when I bring the model to the data is going to be figuring out how is the surplus split between what the consumer wants and the broker wants. And that's the agency conflict, which as you mentioned, it's if I micro found it, there's a lot of models that could explain this conflict of interest between these two parties. And, and yeah, and but I, I'm trying to, it's, it's just too much. So then we move to the estimation part. There are a lot of first order conditions here and there and a lot of cost shifters that estimate the model. Let's, let's ignore them for a second. There are lots of parameters that are estimated. What are the parameters that you want to emphasize that perhaps surprise you the most once you run this model? Okay, so, so if you think about it, there are like two types of negotiations in this model, right? Consumers kind of negotiate with the broker on what product the broker is going to give them. And we also have brokers negotiating with bank over what commission the bank is going to pay them. So it's always, I find it always very interesting to understand who is getting the better end of these negotiations. And what I find is that for consumers and brokers, it's split almost 50-50. So, so I find this suggestive evidence that, well, the broker is not giving consumers the best product for them, but they're not giving them the worst product either. So in a way, there's giving them a product that it gives them a high commission, but it's still good for the consumer. Um, and I find this suggestive evidence, well, I find this evidence that there these repeated sales and these reputation concerns that brokers have are very important that in this market. So if I am a consumer with very high search costs, <laughs> I can go to a broker and then half of the efficiency that the broker will generate for me is appropriated by a broker through the distortion and the other half by me. Of course, the presence of broker in the general equilibrium is going to benefit me because of the upstream competition, et cetera, et cetera. But from the perspective of a single consumer, that's what you are referring to, the 50-50 split. Exactly, from the 50-50 split. So taking prices as given, there's yeah. a 50-50 split. Now, what happens between the broker and the banks? And the way I pin down these negotiation parameters, I, I think it's, it's really cool and very intuitive. So imagine I'm a bank and I'm negotiating with a broker in London and a broker in Scotland. As a bank, I have a bunch of branches, a lot of branches in London, no branches in Scotland. Well, if, if I'm the bank and I'm deciding first which broker I'm going to make an agreement with, I'm a lot more likely to make an agreement with the broker in Scotland because I have nowhere else, no other option to sell my products than with the broker in London where I have a lot of branches to sell my products. The broker in London is going to compete with my own branches, but the one in Scotland will not compete. Exactly. That's another way to look at this. Exactly. So it's this idea, at the end of the day, is this idea that branches and brokers compete for downstream consumers. And that's actually, at the end, what really is bringing efficiency in this market. That's the beauty of, of, of having brokers is that because they compete with branches, they're able to to basically bring prices down. And then the way I identified is that during this time period, there were like 30% of branches in the UK were shutting down for reasons completely uncorrelated with mortgages. Um, so, so basically, it, it creates this exogenous variation on the outside option of banks. Because at the end of the day, branches are the outside option of banks to sell their products. If I don't sell to brokers, I need to sell somewhere and, and branches are, are their main channel. And, and what I find is that at the end of the day, brokers are able to exchange extract a lot of surplus from banks and they're able to get a big commission from banks, which banks cannot fully pass through to consumers because of this competition with the brokers again downstream. Okay, so you use this model, including all these estimated parameters, to estimate the consequences of a number of counterfactuals. One thing that is important about this paper is that many of these counterfactuals have actually been either proposed or even implemented in the policies here. So these are not 
not counterfactuals, at least some of them that you have made up, yes. but these are actual policies that have been implemented in other countries. Yes. So the big advantage of this model is that it allows you to evaluate the relative strength or quantitative importance of these forces, specifically the positive versus negative consequences on the on the presence of, of brokers. The first counterfactual that I want to focus on, and this is one that would be very natural, is the one that just eliminates brokers from the market. That is forcing all households to go through direct sales uh, to get their mortgages. What do you find when you uh, adapt your model to eliminate the presence of brokers given the parameters that you have estimated? So, so what I find is that if you eliminate brokers from the market, then all consumers need to go directly to banks, right? They no longer have to, they don't have the option of, of hiring a broker. So all consumers need to pay these shopping costs. So they need to acquire information and then they need to spend a bunch of time doing the paperwork for the mortgages. So this is going to increase the cost for consumers because before those that had the highest shopping costs could just avoid paying them by hiring the broker. Now, effectively, they need to pay them to find the bank that they want to do the mortgage. Now, what happens is that most people going direct, more often than not, go to nearest branches. And, and effectively, this is, well, partly because like if you go to the nearest branch, uh, you might like it because you don't need to do as many trips or you might have some relationship with that bank, all sorts of reasons. But at the end of the day, in this counterfactual, most people that go direct go to the nearest branch. Now, remember, who has branches in this market? The big players, the top six. These challenger banks, which on average are cheaper, don't have branches. So then their, their share of these challenger banks in the market goes almost to zero. It decreases by a lot because consumers, either they're not aware of them or they're not as convenient because they, they like this proximity with, with the, their lender. And, and at the end of the day, what happens is that because competition just drops massively, prices go up. They increase by 25%. And this leads to a drop in consumer welfare that is equivalent to a 2% fall of annual income. On average, it's even worse for like low income consumers. So big negative effects of, of losing those brokers, mostly because these new banks, which were bringing prices low in the market, basically get almost exit the market. You have convinced me then that brokers should exist, but mm -hmm. maybe somebody will say we can regulate a little bit how they operate. Like for instance, we know that already they are charging certain fees to consumers. Perhaps we could make that the only source of income and we could eliminate the commissions from lenders to brokers or, you know, another way to say we could cap them at zero. And if the brokers are only charging the consumers, now they have an incentive to provide unbiased advice. And that way we get rid of that negative side of the broker's behavior, the distortion that they generate while keeping all of the positive sides. What happens in your mother when you do that? Yes. So, so a lot of regulators, as you mentioned, have actually implemented this measure in other contexts or even in the mortgage market, right? So, so regulators have been very worried about uh, brokers having conflict of interest because of these commission payments from the banks. So they have said, well, you can no longer get upstream payments of so these commissions. You can only get paid by the consumers. So we're moving to a consumer fee-based market. So what happens in my model, if that's the case? Well, let's start with the first order effect. In the baseline. So in, in the current environment, brokers are getting most of their profits from banks. So 75% of their income is by these commission payments that banks give. Only 25% is given by consumers. So consumers in this market pay on average like 150 pounds, which is very little. Now, if you forbid brokers to get income from the banks, well, they need to get income from somewhere, right? So the first order effect is that they're going to increase their fees to consumers. Is this good or bad? Well, it depends, right? As a consumer, I might be willing to pay more for the broker services if I no longer have to split the surplus with the broker and I'm getting just a better product, right? So that's, I would, as a consumer, I would be fine with that. So at the end of the day, it matters how much of a better product the consumer gets through the broker now that the broker no longer has this distorted insights. So let's think about it. Well, the, the, this will be the, the, like the partial equilibrium effect. But the general equilibrium effect tells me, wait, 
Great. Brokers need to decide whether they form agreements with the banks or not. So what would be in this new equilibrium, the network between brokers and banks? Will brokers do business with more or with less banks? Well, what happens is that in the, in the model, when I bring it to the data, I find that challenger banks were paying a lot of commissions to brokers and brokers did business with them. But what I also find is that brokers find it very costly to originate mortgages with these new banks as opposed to the bigger banks. So when you estimate the cost of the broker to do business with the small banks, it's also very high. So what happens? Well, if you don't allow these new banks, these challenger banks to compensate brokers for their higher cost of doing business with them, brokers are going to drop them from their network, right? Because it's just, if, if I need to choose between um, a big bank where with whom I've been doing business for 25 years, I know the paperwork, I know the platform, I know the drill, as opposed to these new players that there's a lot of uncertainty, I might need to learn the paperwork. Well, what I find is that at the end of the day, brokers make their networks a lot narrower. So what happens is that now brokers deal with fewer lenders. So consumers going to brokers are going to have less options to choose from. So competition in the broker channel is going to drop. What happens on the direct channel? Well, on the direct channel, remember competition was already low to begin with. So because competition is low now, both across broker channel and direct channel, prices are going to go up. And, and at the end of the day, what turns out is that consumers are paying more for brokers, but they're not getting a better product because brokers are making their networks narrower. And, and at the end of the day, um, this is not actually a good idea. So one way to think about this is that there is a conditional distortion and an unconditional distortion. The conditional distortion is the one that results from the fact that among the products that the broker has, I am not getting the best one. But the unconditional distortion comes from the fact that the absence of commission rates decreases the network of the brokers, which implies that I may be getting the best product among that network, but this is not the best product that I could get if in a world with commissions, the network of my broker was bigger. Exactly, exactly. It's it's this idea that once you endogenize the choice of the broker to do business with the banks or not, then the change in the network actually affects what type of product consumers get. And this is a first order effect that if you only look at the relationship between brokers and consumers, you don't really get it. Okay. So to eliminate the distortion, we don't really need the commissions to be zero. Everything that we need is that the commissions are the same across all the products that the broker is carrying. So one alternative policy prescription could be that commissions are allowed to be a number bigger than zero, but that they cannot vary across lenders, at least across lenders of the same broker, but let's say across lenders. What happens in your model when and you impose that condition. Uh, so the idea is that you can decide to to set an homogeneous commission, right? You can try to um, so you can try to basically fix the commission at, for example, the average commission in the baseline is 0.4 percent. So you can say, okay, everyone can pay 0.4. Well, what happens then is that um, overall nothing much changes because it turns out that both forces kind of compensate each other. So so the intuition is is the following. So it depends. It depends on where you put this commission fixed, right? Now, imagine that before challenger banks were paying more than this 0.4%. Well, then the effect is almost as much as the ban because they had to pay this high commission to get the brokers to include them in the network. If a fixed amount is below that commission, it's the same effects as the ban, right? Like they will just have to, they will be excluded from the broker's networks because they're not paying enough to compensate the brokers. So you are saying that the main downside side of eliminating the commission was the disappearance of the challenger banks from the network. And the challenger banks are the first ones to disappear from the network because they are the ones who are willing to offer a higher commission to the brokers. So capping the commission has a very similar effect, whether it is at zero or at something like 0.4. Exactly. Also, the fact that you're basically making it homogeneous, it's also favoring the big banks because, well, yeah, like, like if that's what they have to pay, they'll have to pay 
it. So you see this like, no, they're not in both cases. So in, in the case where you put a fixed amount, either consumer surplus increases by a bit or like it can fall by a lot, right? Depending on where you hit this, this fixed commission. And, and what happens is that when you fix the fixed commission too high, well, what happens is that um, the big six are forced to pay more to the brokers, especially brokers in areas where they don't have branches. But then brokers, because they're all the commissions are the same, the challenger banks can't really differentiate themselves. And because they cannot really differentiate themselves from the big banks, they cannot bribe the brokers to introduce their products. The brokers, once again, are going to choose the banks that conditional on getting the same commission are going to have lower costs for them of doing the paperwork or, or creating a relationship. So once again, the network becomes narrower and competition falls in, in the broker channel. Very good. So am I right in concluding from here that you wouldn't touch this market very much? Like in the margin, it is possible that there are certain minor adjustments that might improve consumer welfare. But broadly speaking, almost in every direction that you move, these forces, some of these forces end up decreasing consumer welfare by so much that, that if we are not in the, in the first best, we are not that far from the first best in the way that the market operates right now. So given the results of my model, I think that there's there's some conflict of interest between brokers and consumers and brokers are extracting some surplus from consumers. But because repeated sales and reputation concerns are so strong in this market, brokers are giving consumers a fairly better deal and for sure a much better deal than consumers are getting when they go directly to banks because they don't search. <laughs> consumers at the end of the day, search costs are so high in this market that they end up going to the nearest branch. So if I have to change this market, I think the first order friction is not agency problems at the broker level. I don't think brokers are that distorted. Or in fact, I think that these commission payments or distorting brokers incentives in the right direction, because remember, it is the new banks that are cheaper on average that are paying more to brokers. So I do think that part of the market is working really well. What I would do is I would try to increase consumer search across banks. But of course, we know from previous work that that's very complicated because for some reason, and this is not a UK specific fact, is US, Spain, Italy, like people don't search for banks, even though the gains can be huge. We know they don't. And there's been, I don't know, there's price comparison webpage platforms. There's been, I don't know, advertising. There's so many things that regulators have tried for consumers to shop across banks and we still don't see that happening. So I understand that that's very it's an important friction, but it's very hard to solve. The thing that I would actually recommend to do is also to try to increase the search for brokers. Because as it is right now in, in the UK, consumers don't search for a broker. Like um, 60% of consumers went to just one broker, which was the one recommended, as I mentioned before, from by a family member or a friend or a real estate date. Um, so, so consumers don't search for brokers. I think if consumers were to search for brokers, they would go at least to two brokers. Brokers, brokers will have even less incentives to, to distort their choices. I think for me, the first order of friction of this market is, is search, is consumers' search and, and shopping costs, because it's also very costly for consumers to do all the paperwork for a mortgage. And, and there's a lot of uncertainty about getting rejected. And there's there's a lot of costs. And I think that's the first order of friction. I don't think this agency problem with brokers is the first order of friction in this market. Thank you, Claudia, for coming to the program. Thank you so much for everything, Jordi. My guest today has been Claudia Robles Garcia. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal, and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to some of the papers that we discussed. The logo and introductory music were created by Tania Blanes Iso, and the episode was produced by Anderson Dan.